Welcome to the podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. I have the pleasure of talking with Sue Burney, a senior physiotherapist in the intensive care unit at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. Sue has published widely on the various roles of physiotherapy in ventilated patients and in the March edition of Critical Care and Resuscitation, she co-authored an editorial calling for action on the issue of ICU-acquired weakness and early mobilisation and rehabilitation of critically ill patients. Sue, thanks very much for joining me today. So I was wondering if we could start just with the problem itself. How common is ICU-acquired weakness and what sort of patients are we talking about? Well, so the, the uh, incidence in the literature is anything from up to 25% of patients who are mechanically ventilated for greater than seven days uh, show electrophysiological evidence of um, abnormality. One of the problems that, that we actually have in this particular area is the diagnosing um, or electrophysiological diagnosis and even uh, muscle testing by the MRC scale, which is the other an accepted method currently of diagnosing ICU-acquired weakness in the ICU is that we, it doesn't actually relate to functional outcome of the patients. And so how weak, how weak they are and what that actually impacts on their function is currently not known. In particular, the evidence is uh, uh, leading us towards thinking that patients with sepsis are at most risk and also patients who have ventilation for greater than seven days. Although interestingly in our own research that we've just completed where we instigated a randomised controlled trial of early rehabilitation for patients in ICU, we equally found that patients who were not intubated developed uh, significant weakness and were responsive to a rehabilitation intervention. And that was following them up at ICU discharge at 3, 6 and 12 months. How big is this problem? I mean, what sort of numbers are we talking about? Well, I guess if you think about how many people go through ICU in Australia every year and 80, over 80% 80 of them survive, we're potentially looking at a quarter of those patients having significant long-standing weakness. There was an interesting quote in the editorial where you say that the patients, families and the community will not be satisfied with the legacy of an episode of ICU illness is poor quality of life, muscle weakness, physical incapacity and cognitive dysfunction. How much do we know about the long-term consequences of this problem? is just starting to emerge. There's been uh, recently Margaret Herridge followed her cohort of ARDS survivors up at five years and demonstrated that they still had a, uh, that, that they had ongoing uh, reduced health rate quality of life, particularly in the domains of physical function and reduced um, six minute walk distances, which is the outcome, a functional outcome of choice in most of these studies. Um, compared to age and sex match norms, she also interestingly in that group found that there was a very low percentage of return to work for those patients. Brian Cuthbertson looked at a wider cohort, not a, you know, a more heterogeneous ICU cohort and demonstrated at five years that they had uh, sustained reductions in the physical function domains of health-related quality of life and also that these patients accumulated less quality-adjusted life years uh, compared to age and sex match norms. So it 
it really appears that it is a significant issue for survivors of ICU. And this is also, that it's not just physical dysfunction, that uh, there's also evidence of ongoing cognitive dysfunction that these patients suffer as a result of their um, ICU admission that is potentially linked to uh, the instance of delirium um, in the ICU. And that this is also a sustained outcome at greater than 12 months following ICU discharge. It sounds like an enormous problem and in my preparations for this interview I found some articles on on this concept that were older than I am and I'm, I'm wondering why it's taken so long for people to switch on to this as an issue. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think for a long time and, and you know, not, in, not incorrectly, we've concentrated on mortality as being the only outcome of importance uh, from an ICU perspective. And, and now that we've developed many life-saving strategies and there's you know, such an improvement in the way patients are resuscitated and managed, that the majority of our patients that go through ICU survive. And now we are beginning to, to look at the quality of that survival and finding out that in many cases, patients potentially are not going to be thanking us for the survival, uh, for the quality of survival that we've left them with. Is that an easy thing to measure? Because mortality clearly is an easy thing to measure. It's very binary, but uh, are there well-validated measures for uh, these quality-of-life issues that you're talking yeah, about? That's a, that's a really good question. I mean, the literature thus far has really concentrated on using uh, the SF36 questionnaire, uh, which is short form 36, and also the Euroqual. And in our study, we also used the AQUAL because there was age and sex-matched uh, Australian normative data. One of the great problems, though, in measuring health-related quality of life is the cognitive state of the patients. As evidence has accumulated that these patients' cognitive state is, uh, is potentially impaired, it then uh, becomes much more difficult to actually uh, assess whether the outcomes are, are valid outcomes and also compared to what their health-related quality of life was before ICU because it's also been established that patients uh, who are admitted to ICU have poorer health-related quality of life before they are admitted to ICU. And actually measuring and capturing that really most often relies on, on proxy data, which has its own set of limitations, but currently is this the only uh, way we have of, of measuring health-related quality of life. So there is significant uh, issues surrounding uh, the measurement of health-related quality of life and the validity of, of the measure. But I guess now there is just the evidence almost appears overwhelming that there is that there is a signal there, um, irrespective of of the measurement tool that is used, whether that be a qual SF36 or Euroqual. I guess that then begs the question: if you assume that that that, that evidence supports that there is a problem, um, what we can do about it. And I understand that there's been some research recently that shows that interventions can make a difference. Yes, there has, there's, there's really two groups of research that have occurred. Those concerning early mobility, and there's been a number of uh, uh, case series and, uh, and a cohort trial from the US that has demonstrated that, uh, that it's safe and that it's feasible. And in a recent um, article by Peter Morris showed that these patients were less likely to be require hospital readmission at 12 months. And of more 
interest to uh, to me because of, of the research line that we uh, that my group has gone down is that early rehabilitation has been shown in three randomised controlled trials to be uh, to demonstrate improved function at ICU discharge, and in our study, which we are just uh, almost ready to submit, we showed that they had improved function at 12 months following ICU discharge. Now, the two uh, articles that showed uh, hospital discharge improved function were one was done in the US uh, by Bill Schweikert and his group out of Chicago, and they interestingly had a perfect control group because physical therapy and occupational therapy, which is the intervention that they use, is not routinely provided in the ICU. And uniquely in their cohort, they actually measured their functional uh, prior to admission, that they had to be able to be independent at home prior to admission. And they showed that, the, that uh, a rehabilitation intervention that included mobilisation improved uh, physical function and functional recovery and also that it actually reduced delirium in the intervention group compared to the control group. The Burton study uh, from Europe, was the control was much more similar to what we would expect in Australia where patients are got out of bed, they receive respiratory care, etc. And they, uh, they demonstrated also that there was improved muscle strength and functional outcome at hospital discharge. Our own study, we instigated a rehabilitation program in the ICU that included walking and muscle strengthening, um, limited muscle strengthening exercise, and we demonstrated an improved uh, functional outcome. We measured that they had intensive uh, exercise in ICU. They had intensive exercise on the ward and also an outpatient program, which was the unique aspect to our trial as we followed these patients up. And we were able to show that they had improved functional outcome at 12 months, not just at hospital discharge. So I think that the evidence is promising that, a, that a, an intervention that uh, aims at improving mobility and muscle strength can have a sustained improvement in physical function in these patients. From a practical perspective, many of us know intuitively that our patients will do better if we move them around. Lots of us are trying to get patients out of bed and, and, and so on. But can you, can you illustrate how far you, you um, suggest we go with this? I know that we've talked about early mobilisation and early rehabilitation. I was hoping that you could uh, illustrate that a little bit. One of the uh, one of the, most, the key points in, in, in this is that we and surprised us in our study is that these patients are capable of doing a lot more than what we thought that they were able to, and certainly I think um, we it, it really depends on the infrastructure of the unit. You know, most of the beds now become most patients will sit up into a chair from a bed, but we also think that. Uh, Many of them can sit over the side of the bed and many of them can stand. And that's the sort of thing that, uh, as an illustration of what you can do, um, is an important place to start. And that's whether they're still requiring mechanical ventilation or not. For example, the group at Johns Hopkins will mobilise patients who are intubated and ventilated uh, and on significant levels of PEEP and oxygen, and yet they will still get them up and mobilise them um, with their ventilator. 
for our patients, we concentrate more on um, potentially getting them out of bed and getting them on their feet and, and almost marching them on the spot if they're still connected to the ventilator rather than marching them away, um, which is probably just a, a cultural difference that we would do in, we would have in our own unit. But I think in many occasions there's a view that the patient is too sick or they're too sleepy or they're too agitated or they're not strong enough. But in fact, patients are able to do a lot more than what we think that they can do. And in our study, we had uh, only on, we, we did over a thousand exercise sessions with our patients. We had 74 in our intervention group. We did over a thousand, uh, we had over a thousand exercise sessions that we could potentially have achieved. And only 25% of occasions were patients deemed hemodynamically and uh, respiratory-wise. They, they were considered unsafe to exercise. And we ended up exercising well over half of those patients. And most of them, 76% of them, were able to stand up and march on the spot or walk away from the, uh, or walk away from the bedside. So the capacity of these patients to do stuff, even when they're intubated and ventilated, is much higher than I think we potentially understand as we look at a patient lying in bed. What sort of exercise are you talking about with them? Aside from the standing and, and marching on the spot, what other things do you have them doing? We used uh, weighted or resisted exercise to strengthen their upper and their lower limbs, um, done with the physiotherapist at the bedside. And uh, we had them marching on the spot. And we, we also concentrated on functional tasks like moving from sitting to standing. Um, because that actually requires a lot of uh, a lot of trunk and core control to be able to do that. So those are the activities that we concentrated on. Now that relied on the fact that patients were uh, cognitively able to follow commands. But we found, just as Schweikert found, that even patients that, that had uh, a level of delirium were still able to follow those commands and still able to participate in the study in, in their exercise rehabilitation. How do you define early in this? What, where, how early are you commencing this process? Well, our patients were included from day five. Yeah. Uh, we had them out of bed and marching. And Schweikert's group did it within 72 hours of the instigation of mechanical ventilation. The Chris Burton group in Europe uh, had a much slower um, in initiation of exercise and that usually occurred after 10 days. But the group that, the Bur that Burton studied was a much, the, the Apaches were 24 to 26, whereas the group that Schweik had studied and our cohort was more around mean Apaches of 19 or 20. Um, so we, we had them exercising with the, uh, but from day five onwards. Our experience, though, from the study would be the patients, many patients would have been able to have done it much earlier, but we were restricted by the study protocol. There's a fantastic YouTube video of the Johns Hopkins, or at least one case of, of what they do at Johns Hopkins, isn't there? And I think if anyone has seen that, they'll appreciate the level of culture change and process change that would be required. What sort of barriers have you noticed to, to employ this sort of strategy in a unit? I think there has to be a major philosophical shift to animating the... The, the, the unit and, and not having it as a bed-based unit. And 
and accepting that it is safe and it is feasible to be able to mobilise these patients. I think that the safety, there is always great concern, um, quite justifiably in the critically ill patients, that they are not able to uh, get out of bed, they're not able to mobilise and that they're too sick. But in fact, none of the three major studies that I've quoted to you that have had rehabilitation, um, that included rehabilitation as part of their protocol, had any serious adverse events. And so there are a number of uh, protocols that are published in the literature of safe, for, for safety criteria for exercise that, that simply could, that could be put in place within any unit um, in Australia. Further to that, um, I think that there, that there has to be, that the culture change really needs to start from the top and that it really needs to be medically driven and that they, that the physicians need to understand that that's a, uh, that it's an important part of their, of the recovery process is the fact that these patients get out of bed and that they mobilise and that they complete the strength work. And this can be done even if the patient is asleep and not able to cooperate with using things like neuromuscular electric stimulation and so this can be done at a very very early stage in the patient's recovery even at the time where they still may remain sedated. I think also that levels of sedation need to be titrated so that patients are able to cooperate and able to get up and move and that's another barrier that really needs to be overcome uh, within the unit and I, I think the greatest obstacle in, in ICUs is really the will to do it and understanding of why it is important that these patients get up and move and and also for us to take responsibility for the legacy of, of, of ICU, for us to really believe that it's important that these patients have a, a good quality of survival and not just survive. That's a very good point because there's, there's very few intensivists who have access to the patients long beyond their ICU stay, isn't there? That's right, and, and, and that's certainly the model that we have in Australia. In the UK, they've set up uh, clinics to monitor patients, post-ICU clinics, so that they can follow these patients up and, and, and assess their ongoing physical requirements and their cognitive uh, inabilities and also to treat any, any evidence of PTSD. And we don't have those follow-up clinics in Australia currently. From watching... The Johns Hopkins video, it does appear that there would be an awful lot of resource and reorganisation of the, the work environment required. What sort of hurdles are there that need to be overcome in that regard? There certainly needs to be, to, to, to get an intubated patient up and about, there certainly needs to be a, uh, which is what the Johns Hopkins video shows, is that, that uh, they have a, a, different, a, a different setup to, to what we do in Australia, that they have a respiratory therapist and they also only have one to two nursing staff rather than one to one nursing staff. So the actual model would be different for us here compared to what uh, is used in the US. And so the, the key really is, is to have, is to be able to use, to either use a transport ventilator or if you can use the ventilator that's in the bay, 
you also need to have uh, the infrastructure of um, uh, mobile IV poles. Really, it, it, it sounds like a big undertaking, and I think whenever these things start, they are a big undertaking. But it's one of those things that the more that you do it, the, um, the easier it starts to become. Currently in Australia, it's not routine practice to mobilise patients who are intubated and ventilated. And uh, very few, if any, places in Australia would routinely do it, although there is a physiotherapist in Perth who, has, who is investigating um, the role of early mobilisation and the culture change that's required in order for early mobilisation to commence. Uh, now, I guess if there are resources um, that are required, often one of the, the factors that influences decision makers is costs, and I understand that your group has done some work into that sort of area. Yeah, as part of our trial, we are currently undertaking a economic costing of, um, of the intervention, and so we are, we're doing a full economic analysis of of the effect of our intervention compared to the cost of standard care. And one of the problems is, as you're right, it's, it's resources and it's people and it's time. And, uh, and in ICU, one of the issues is, is that people need to be suitably qualified in order to be able to uh, be of assistance in the ICU in terms of, of mobilising. And we're hoping that, given that we have found a difference in functional outcome, we're hoping, we're following these patients up and measuring their utilisation of ongoing resources in the community that um, I think perhaps is not necessarily appreciated uh, in Australia as much as in places like the US where it's much easier to cost all of these interventions because if there is a patient cost involved. But we're also interested in, in, in also measuring carer cost and carer uh, quality of life in the future of these of patients who, who have discharged from our survivors of ICU. Sue, thank you very much for your time today on the podcast. It's been a fascinating exploration of this evolving area. Thanks, Todd. More podcasts like this one can be found at our website, www.crit-iq.com.au.